0: Hello and welcome to this week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval, and yes, revolution. Now, we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. Week in, week out, we will help prepare activists in Canada and internationally for the coming revolutionary events by analyzing all of the developments in Canada. We hope that you can join us every week. With that being said, let's get into it. This week, uh, we are talking about Ukraine uh we had planned to have a podcast uh this week on (laughs) question of Ukraine and now you have Russian troops moving in you have military conflict uh and uh yeah so it makes it all the more pertinent for us to discuss this obviously we're a Canadian podcast but actually Canada is involved in this conflict uh in many ways and so we're going to discuss the role of Canada uh in this uh uh, in this situation, um, and to start us off here, we have a bit of a different setup. We have uh, Peter Mikolenko, who is a Ukrainian Marxist, uh, who, who is going to tell us uh, a bit of what's going on uh, in Ukraine and a bit of the history of the conflict and a bit of the how we got here, uh, kind of stuff. But uh, first off, Peter, I mean, maybe you could just say a little bit about yourself to uh, uh, get us started off.
1: Uh, thanks for having me, Joel. Uh, so I. Uh... Born in the USSR, I moved to uh, to Ukrainian family from Kiev. We moved uh, after the economic, due to the economic collapse in the post-USSR era in '92, uh, to Canada, where we had uh, relatives that had moved there after World War II. And I uh, I grew up in uh, in Toronto. I have uh, some contact with the Ukrainian diaspora uh, there. Uh, but, uh, I mean, as I was started moving left politically, it became untenable to, to stick around in that area. Um, definitely just uh, a lot of the things they were saying were not uh, good by me. So, uh, and then after, uh, after the Occupy movement, uh, I, uh, I met fight back there. And I've been uh, a Marxist since.
0: Cool. Great. And you've been obviously following and analyzing and writing on uh, Ukrainian politics for a number of years.
1: Uh, yeah, I've been uh, writing on Ukraine for Marxist.com and recently uh, uh, my myself and a few uh, sympathizers from the IMT in Ukraine have launched a website called MarxistUA.com
0: that's wonderful well if there's any ukrainian listeners you can check that we encourage you to check that website out um yeah, so... you know? exactly. so look... okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> my ukrainians are rusty uh but uh yeah so maybe let's get right into the what what is happening right now can you give us sort of a general picture
1: uh so this morning uh we were uh we woke up to a very shock when uh at about uh, 4 a.m uh 4 a.m the time like uh k of time uh russia launched uh military operations on uh ukraine um the uh, initially it started with the shelling and airstrikes of uh, military depots so there were a lot of explosions of places where there's a lot of ammunition stored, of uh, airports, of attacking the Ukrainian air force on the ground, um, and uh, of, uh, of uh, yeah, attacks on military targets. Uh, the, at the same time, uh, areas in Ukraine around Kharkov, which is the, east, the, the north of Donbass in eastern Ukraine, Uh, There uh, started to be uh, Russian columns that started moving in. They also started moving in from the south, from the Crimea area, to the region of Kherson. Now there's reports of uh, them moving in from the uh, Donbass republics, but this is not yet uh, confirmed. Some reports of uh, uh, even... um, uh, even uh, the uh, of some paratroopers taking over the uh, the Antonov military airport near Kiev, where they uh, were the, um, there's a famous plane Antonov that's where it's based. So uh, at the moment, there are columns going in at different points into Ukraine. The targets seem to be military. There are, uh, there of course, with any this type of version, there are civilians dying. Also, the fact that it's wrong to think that the whole Ukrainian army are just Nazis. This is just, this is just a caricature uh, that some people are using. Most of the people who join the Ukrainian army aren't aren't doing it for for their necessarily nationalism. They're mostly from the poorest regions in in Ukraine. Uh, the people who. You know, have have the means usually avoid the army because they have means. Uh, so, so in any case, the, just the massacre, of just, just uh, like Ukrainian recruits shouldn't be like uh, celebrated as anti-Nazi activity. I, I don't think um, the uh, some of the Ukrainian units seem to be uh, seem to be capitulating which is expected. It's a divided country politically. There's not a lot of, there's a lot of people who hate the government. Um, But there's some units that are putting up some, some resistance. There's some uh, reports of Russian planes and helicopters also getting shot down. So this is not going to be a clean war whatsoever. It remains to be seen whether the military targets will turn into, um, more uh widespread uh attacks okay well
0: thanks peter for uh giving us a general picture of the situation this is obviously very concerning to everyone um but i guess a big question that a lot of people are asking and the most important question for marxists i think is how did we get here do you mind giving us maybe a few minutes uh, a bit of a bit of a history of, you know, the, the situation, the conflict.
1: Yeah, I don't think I can do uh, I can do justice to the entire, uh, history of Ukraine. Uh, but, uh, since the fall of the Soviet union, which I'm sure you would do another podcast episode about, and, and I wouldn't be here. Um, you had a huge collapse economically every former soviet republic by like 60% of the gdp uh just a disaster uh you had the trend during the transition to to, to capitalism uh bourgeois class called called the oligarchy forming from different uh, parts of the soviet bureaucracy and different criminal elements as well uh who took you know who made millions off privatizing factories off of just uh, yeah, just you know, selling different public resources off, literally, you know, doing Ponzi schemes sometimes of taking away people's uh, apartments. This is in Ukraine and Russia. They're not. Uh, it's just the oligarchy in Russia, especially because of the uh, rise in price of oil from the late 90s to 2000s. Uh, and the fact that it's a bigger country, we're able to form a solid enough uh, base. um From military power, economic power, that they became a kind of uh, imperialism. Now, Ukraine uh, was from the '90s, 2000s, were kind of in between the two imperialisms. They were playing a little bit with the West, playing a little bit with the East, and kind of trying to make a deal between both. But the situation, you know, because of the crisis from 2008, the economic situation keeps getting worse and worse. Uh, so uh, part of the Ukrainian oligarchy decided they wanted one of these uh, presidents who was a bit closer to Russia out, Yanukovych. They, with the help of the West, they organized this, uh, this uh, Euromaidan movement. It got Yanukovych out. Almost no other oligarchs faced any consequences. Uh, it resulted in, um, because of the nationalistic nature of Euromaidan, because of the nationalistic demands... It divided, and the thing about Ukraine, it's not a monoculture. No culture is a culture, really. Uh, and Ukraine is the same thing. You'd have, in the West, you have more Ukrainian speakers. Uh, maybe some of them are culturally closer to Poland and people in, in, you know, Slavs in Central Europe. Uh, in the East, you have people that are a lot closer culturally to Russia, even, you know, who formed, had formed a Soviet type of identity during the the Soviet period. So uh, it's culturally divided and the people in the East really were upset by the nationalistic rhetoric brought about by the new uh, Maidan government. And then this new Maidan government said saying that, you know, oh, we're against this oligarch Yanukovych which was completely incredible given that they just brought another oligarch Poroshenko to power. Uh, so you had this anti-Maidan movement that uh, protested Euro Maidan and it was... In the cities where, uh, you know, Yanukovych was more popular than the pro-Western candidates, um, and in some places like in Crimea, there was enough—it's there was enough uh, uh, backing behind the movement that it uh, gave it allowed Russia to come in and annex the, the Crimea from Ukraine. Uh, so it is an annexation. But it's popular though. It's, it's, it's a contradictory thing, but we can you know we don't need to explain it one way or the other. Like it's a popular movement or it's just an annexation. It's both. It's, that's, that's the way it was. And in the Donbass, there was a separatist movement. Initially, the, the Ukrainian military was sent in to shut it down. And I guess this is parallel to what's happening today a little bit, the military was not very effective because the country is divided and many people in the military were against Maidan and even went over to the side of the separatists. Uh, The separatists, it's a a whole complicated thing regarding, you know, different class considerations versus Eurovaidon versus I don't think we have time to talk about today given the invasion. but uh why
0: don't you maybe a good way to segue here is why don't you describe like what started this was or started. <laughs> I guess one thing that that pre was a precursor to this invasion or the military operations was the other day Putin recognizing the Eastern republics. I don't know, maybe we could mm-hmm. start with that, because this flows right off of this.
1: So these separatist republics um Initially, what this movement was demanding was more autonomy from the Kiev government. Uh, The Kiev government responded, who were very high off the Euromaidan, uh, responded very blatantly by sending, you know, by not even listening to them about any referendum or anything and just sent in uh, troops. And elements within this separatist movement, uh, the ones that got the most, I would say, support not necessarily internally um, but externally as well we're not ones that were necessarily like focusing more on the working class progressive side but more on the russian nationalist side that we need to be part of russia that you know these ukrainian fascists are controlling us and uh you mean they uh, got of support course the... they got support from russia right they got support from Russia, and eventually uh, there was uh, elements of political opposition within those republics. But they were assassinated in 2015, including a very interesting figure called, called Mozgovoy. Um But uh, the uh, so they kind of became uh, they're under the control of a military apparatus that's from the military of the separatist movement, and that basically uh, takes its orders from Moscow. Uh, the fact that they weren't recognized was actually surprising, and it was actually kind of a betrayal to the separatists, because Russia Russia doesn't care about them. Russia was just using them as a pawn against Ukraine and NATO. And Russia it, it's in Russia's interest to, to weaken the Ukrainian government so they can have. So, um, in the case if Ukraine did join NATO, that they would have a weaker weaker enemy there.
0: Yeah, well, that yeah, that really helps to, to explain how we got here. I guess, rewinding a little bit, um, out of the Euromaidan movement, uh, you had this new regime in Kiev that you described here. Uh, yeah, what, what would you say the nature of this regime is? Because that really plays into, you notice a lot of this coming up, Putin using like anti-Nazi stuff. You already mentioned the Nazis and Ukrainian military um, um maybe I don't know, can you explain the nature of the Ukrainian regime? Like what yeah, what is this? Uh, um and what is the the role that this is playing in the conflict?
1: Yeah, here and like a lot of things with Ukraine, you have to there's two propaganda versions on either side, and then the, the truth is somewhere in the middle, probably closer to one side or the other, um, depending on what. But uh uh you do have uh, the na- Nazi, these uh, elements from the a lot from the Ukrainian lumpen proletariat, who were uh, you know experienced like growing up in poverty in post Soviet Ukraine, uh, so they were uh, they were kind of uh, uh, easy pickings for these uh, far right groups that that emerged post independence. Uh, nationalism is a common theme in all post Soviet republics. You know, you had to go from the situation in USSR where you had just people working side by side. You know, you hear any post soviet family you talk about, they talk about colleagues from every nationality, and it's something that's just extremely heightened, not just in Ukraine, but in a lot of different places. Um, Now, the Nazis themselves were not given... There were some, like... uh, There were some Nazis, I would say, in high positions, like Parubi, also, kind of hides. I mean, his thing was being a Nazi, but hiding that he was a Nazi and trying to join with like the pro-West liberals. That was that was his career actually. And uh, the, but really, the Nazis were really a toy for the oligarchy that came to power after after uh, the Maidan. And you have even stories of different Nazi groups taking over different, say. Um, economic uh, operations for one oligarch or the other, um, doing you know playing the role of strike breakers sometimes, uh, and them fighting against each other when one you know uh, when they're you know the person backing them is is uh, different. So I would call this uh, capitalist regime moving towards Bonapartism. And what's, what's funny, actually, is last year, um, uh, when Zelensky was shutting down opposition media, um, the BBC actually compared him to Putin a little bit based on his actions. And this is what we kind of saw in the past few years with the Ukrainian regime, as the, uh, as, the, as what it is, is, is getting, well, was getting more concerned about its stability and its popularity.
0: Well, I guess that also that segues, I think, into the next point that I wanted to address with you, which is, you know, you're talking about they're 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 comparing the Ukrainian regime to similar to Putin. So that gets into what is Putin doing and why? And one of the reasons I believe is, uh, if you've been following the internal politics of Russia, is the Putin government has been fo- has had a massive drop in popularity a lot of people are really upset at the government there's been rising poverty there's of course massive corruption um and then there's the heavy-handed nature that the putin regime deals with opposition um from all sides actually <laughs> but in particular more mm-hmm. and more working-class people left-wing people getting imprisoned imprisoned mm-hmm. we've had our comrades in pris- imprisoned for protesting the government mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so and then i guess that leads to like why is yeah what is put doing like is, is he just I think the way that sometimes in the West that they portray him is that he's just this egotistical jerk.
1: <laughs> he's just doing mm-hmm. it
0: for his own ego or something, but obviously there's, there is some, there's something behind this. It's not simply his own uh, individual interest. I don't know if you want to speak to that or if you have much to say about that. Like, yeah. Why is Putin doing this? What's been like the, I there's said, been a he, bit of a back and
1: forth. Hey, he surprised me to, today. I mean, in our analysis before what happened today, uh, we, we thought that it's very, it doesn't make sense. Putin represents the, the Russian oligarchy. Uh, he does have his own individual power. He has enormous popularity. Why is this popular? Because he came in after Yeltsin. He's not, he's not someone who took, that's the thing you, I mean, we have to understand about Yeltsin as well. He's, he was also a dictator like Putin was. He was also a semi-bonapartist. Like, you know, if you have elections, you have some opposition, but then everything is kind of under his control. Yeltsin operated the same way. Putin continued that. Uh, Putin experienced the oil boom. And the, he came in at a time where the Russian oligarchy was scared that the communists would take power back because they were winning. They actually won the parliamentary election in 95 by a huge margin. So um, he's, you know, relative to Ellison, he's definitely been a more intelligent leader, representative of the Russian oligarchy. He's, you know, his moves, I guess, been seen, you know, I mean, he's an evil guy. He's a bastard and everything, but he's been kind of, from the point of view, from the narrow point of view of the Russian bourgeoisie, he's been rational. But today, it's really, it's really unclear. What made the because definitely the threat of war was uh, was beneficial to him. It was also beneficial to the Ukrainian regime, who's been shutting down opposition, you know, based on this. But I, I don't really know. I, I I think more information will come out later. Maybe it's the Russian military that that forced forced his hand. Uh, like you mentioned, he is losing popularity, so maybe it's a sign that things are getting more out of his control.
0: Right. The way that the way that I'm reading it is there was a back and forth, well, for years about this, for decades, to be honest. Um, And it has it has a lot to do with the decline, the relative decline of Western, the power of Western imperialism, in particular U.S. imperialism. Like, I think that what you've noticed is Russian imperialism becoming increasingly emboldened because they've seen American imperialism fail. Look at Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, that's the most recent, obvious example. And so, from the standpoint of Russian imperialism, Putin is—he uh, is playing a good. He's playing a strong hand against a weak hand. <laughs> like he's threatened military. Like like I think he was pushed into it by the West. To be honest, partially because. He says, well, I'll take uh, we, you know, he's making requests about recognizing Donbass and stuff like this. And they basically say, no, we'll do. But then at the end of the day, he's the one with the soldiers on the border. And they're saying, like Joe Biden, he won't commit troops. So they don't really have much to back up their threats against Putin. I mean, economic sanctions play a role, of course, but he's basically if he wants to back up his threats, Putin and he does have internal problems, uh, which a little war <laughs> can help someone like him. And then of course, there is the role that Putin as an individual place. Uh, I think all of this, in my opinion, adds up to, to say that he was generally, uh, he was almost left with no other option. What well, was he just supposed to back down with this? <laughs> after all of this, I think he had to do something. And then if you're gonna take the Donbass region, well, you're going to have to take out Ukrainian military targets, uh, as well, uh, in the process and to eliminate the ability of a counter-strike and et cetera, et cetera. Now, how far this goes is a little difficult to say because taking, taking the whole, whole country is a whole nother matter, which would have, especially in the West, as you said, there'd be a lot of hostility and it'd have to be holding down, a uh, hostile population, um, potentially. So I'm not sure he'll go that far, but yeah, there's definitely interests of Russian imperialism behind this, and the weakening of Western imperialism. That is basically, par- especially after Crimea, they're more or less paralyzed and couldn't really do much. So I think this is, and actually, we should expect more of this as capitalism is de- is entering a terminal decline. Uh, different imperialist powers look to get a piece of the pie and unfortunately ukraine is as it has been in history many times <laughs> a pie that different imperialist powers try to divide up um so i know that's been my sort of read on this um uh but we'll we'll uh keep following the situation and see really how far it goes um uh yeah but maybe I guess a lot of people would be asking, like, what do we do about it, <laughs> right? Like, like, what do you do? Mm. Uh, I, 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 I don't know about you, Peter, but I've noticed, like, my sort of general, general, like, people on the left are actually fall. They're sometimes they're falling into it, either, uh, oh, Russia is the aggressor and Russia's really evil, or Ukrainian government is Nazis. Is it, they're falling into one of these two camps. But... Mm. I don't know if you want to speak to this. Like, what, what do Marxists do in this position? Like, what is the uh, you know what is the internationalist approach?
1: Just just on the, on the thing you mentioned, I think it's a little bit step beyond before like like I said, it's a little bit of a step beyond compared to the actions of Russian imperialism up to this date, uh, and actually something quite surprising and, and possibly game changing, depending on what comes out of this. Uh, but, um, I mean, definitely uh, what what our issue was in the leading up to this was to oppose war hysteria. The reason our rationale for this was because this can go on years and you don't want to stop fighting your own ruling class, fighting for, for the working class, just for something that can go on years. Um but obviously, the situation is changed today. At the same time, we don't stand with the Ukrainian ruling class. We don't fight for Zelensky, who's represented the Ukrainian oligarchy. Um, it's not. It doesn't mean that he's a Nazi or something. They definitely court Nazis, but uh, and court far writers more more generally. But it's 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 wrong to say that. Uh, uh, but this is, yeah, this is a military evasion. It's ruining people's lives. It's forcing the whole country into panic. It's murdering innocent people. We need to, and, and soldiers, and uh, uh, it's destroying the quality of life for Ukrainians and for, for Eastern Europe. And we need, to, we need to oppose this war. Our Russian comrades are uh, trying to get involved in, uh, in protests uh, for, uh, against the war. Um and on the Ukraine side, we need to uh it's a divided country. Some people might have illusions in in the nationalist point of view in the European Union to come and save Ukraine. Some would have illusions in in Russia as like you know, anything is better than what we have a rotten regime. So we have to maintain a class position. None of none of the either the uh current regime in Ukraine or the oligarchy in Russia is, is our friend. We see how they brought about misery to the Donbas, how they expropriated all political uh, power there. And um, uh, we, uh, yeah, we need to uh, also from our end, show that uh, this war is not in the interest of the, of the Russian people, but just uh, it's, a, it's a war brought on by the, by the Russian uh, ruling class. And our only way out of this is cross-border solidarity. It's building towards an organization that can unite these different people from the from the Soviet Union uh, across uh, across national lines and along uh, solid class lines because we all have oligarchs. Uh, they're going to continue to to make these wars until we until we get rid of them, and we're uh, we're playing a part in building that in the IMT.
0: Well, I think that. That is a good note to finish off the session here with Peter. Uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, we need to develop an internationalist uh, class approach uh, on these these uh, wars and these conflicts. Capitalism means war. <laughs> capitalism means imperialism. It means imperialist conquest. It means uh, and as as capitalism enters crisis, uh, it means uh, attempting to divide up. Uh, nations for the interests of imperialism, whether it's Russian imperialism or Western uh, imperialism, American imperialism or NATO. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, for the next portion of the podcast, I was going to bring in Alex Grant, as as we have had for the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, to talk a bit about the role that Canada has been playing in Ukraine and what the approach uh, that socialists should take in a country like Canada towards this. Uh, but first, I wanted to just take a short commercial break. Um, we had, as we talked about the last two weeks, we had our uh, Montreal Marxist Winter School. Uh, we had last this, this, just this past weekend. Um, it was fantastic. It was record attendance. We had almost 1,200 people register um, from all over the world, and um, a record number of people from Canada, uh, and lots of new people, lots of enthusiasm, lots of excitement. We had great presentations, great discussion. Um, yeah, this is the biggest, again, we keep saying the biggest and it keeps getting bigger. So if you missed it or if you attended and maybe missed a session here or there, uh, you can go to marxist.ca. You should see a banner there that you can click on. Uh, you can click there. There's a report and you can you can catch up on any sessions that you missed. They should all be there, all the presentations. Um, and we really encourage you to do that. We will also be putting them on our YouTube channel and on our podcast Uh, so yeah you'll you'll be able to pick up uh to uh, check out anything that you missed um there but yeah the montreal marx winter school is absolutely wonderful if you were attending the montreal winter school and you did like it and you want to get more involved contact us join us get involved help us build the forces of marxism to fight for socialism Um, Uh, And yeah, another thing uh, that I did want to advertise here, did want to plug, is the In Defense of Marxism magazine. So yeah, we are part of the international Marxist tendency, and we place a key importance on Marxist theory. Uh, We need to understand why the world is the way it is, where... For example, war comes from, imperialism comes from, what capitalism is, what the class struggle is, uh, uh, and and what yeah what, what is the Marxist analysis of many questions. Um, and therefore, the In Defense of Marxism magazine is an essential tool. It has been relaunched last year by the International Marxist Tendency, and it comes out uh, quarterly. Uh, yeah, and we we distribute the magazine here in Canada, and you can go to our website, uh, and, uh, and click to subscribe to our paper and you'll go to the bottom and you'll see a link to subscribe to the defense of Marxism magazine. So I really encourage people, uh, to go and do that. Very important. Subscribe to the Defense of Marxism magazine. Um, well, moving on, I have Alex Grant here. Uh, and yeah, we're going to talk a bit about, I think Peter, the session with Peter was a good introduction to the topic. Um, but maybe uh, yeah, we can talk a bit about Canada in this. Uh, I don't know, Alex. You want to get us started? Uh, what has Canada's approach to Ukraine been?
2: Hey, Joel. Great to be back on the show. Canada. Well, Canada's got this tradition of well, this propaganda of being peacekeepers, to being nice, being peaceful. You know, Canadian tourists just to put a maple leaf on their backpack so they would people wouldn't think they were bellicose Americans. Well, with Ukraine. Uh, The beaver has uh, drawn its claws and its teeth and Canada has been, uh, if not to mix metaphors, has been a real hawk on Ukraine, has been pushing to send up to Russia and uh, has been pushing and pushing and pushing the greater support for the Ukrainian nationalism and the nationalist regime, the right-wing nationalist regime. And and, and numerous commentators have pointed on this, that uh, Canada has been sort of one of the most vociferous. Part of this is for domestic purposes. People may not know that the third largest Ukrainian community on the planet is in Canada. Obviously the first is Ukraine, the second is Russia, and the third is in Canada, uh, a large immigration over the last century from Ukraine, or even longer than that, uh, to Canada. And, and, so, and the Ukrainian-Canadian community, interestingly, 100 years ago uh, and thereabouts, was overwhelmingly socialist. The Ukrainians played a lead role in forming the labor movement on the prairies especially in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and uh, and, and Northern Ontario, and uh, and, and played a, a really important role in the founding of the Communist Party of Canada. But sadly, in the uh, post-Second World War world, the Ukrainian population in Canada had been captured by right-wing nationalists, and so the majority opinion is actually very right-wing uh, amongst uh Ukrainian-Canadians, at least the organized political uh, opinion. Um, So part of it is sort of bending in that way, but the part of it is blatant imperialism that Canada is looking for markets and spheres of influence, that uh, they've been pushing a free trade with Ukraine capitalist free trade. Uh, I I think it was uh, valued at over $14 billion a year And and in fact, they're they're building uh, an arms factory, a small arms factory in Ukraine, and have been, uh, again, one of the the, the most vociferous in supporting privatization, right-wing policies, um, and in fact, sending Canadian troops to train the Canadian military. There was a scandalous example of actually, they were training Nazi-sympathizing troops in Ukraine. And they weren't concerned about training them. They were concerned about the optics. Oh, people might find out that Canada is training Nazis and we shan- shouldn't let them find out. Well, people did find out. So yeah, Canada has been playing this very bellicose role.
0: Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Um, but what, so that's a bit of the, the traditional role that Canada has been playing here and what they've been saying in the past. What, what, are, they, what are they saying now?
2: What's their main argument about what's happening now? Yeah, well, uh, rank hypocrisy. Rank hypocrisy. I, I was listening to uh, uh, Bob Ray on the radio this morning. Uh, Bob Ray uh, seems to keep on popping up in terrible places uh, as, as the, uh, uh, the, the man of betrayal. And uh, he is now Canada's uh, ambassadors to the United Nations and and he was railing against uh, Russia breaking the the rules-based international order uh, breaking international law and peace and democracy and all of these things that Canada and its allies in NATO are obviously supporting utter hypocrisy Uh, This is dust out of people's mouths. You know, Bob Ray's been saying this. Trudeau's been saying it. Other representatives of the Western powers and NATO have been talking about international law. These people do not care about international law one little bit. They didn't care about international law in Afghanistan. They didn't care about international law in Yugoslavia, where they bombed Yugoslavia. In fact, they bombed the serbian uh a a tv station killing like a dozen journalists and then said it was a justified military target that's the support for peace and democracy by these people they definitely didn't care for international law in iraq or in libya so western imperialism which canada is a part of has been pushing and pushing and pushing its own interests for markets and spheres of influence. And now they're trying to complain about Russia doing the same thing. Utter hypocrites. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Behind all of this is complete hypocrisy. uh, And uh, yeah, kind of very calculated imperialist interest. Um, uh, Yeah, so I guess... Moving on to, yeah, what people should do in the labor movement, what should we do in Canada? Uh, Maybe we can first start with an example of what not to do, (laughs) a bad example. Uh, What what has the NDP uh, been saying about this?
2: Yeah, well, what what is the purpose of the NDP leadership? Uh, There's a recent uh, statement by Jagmeet Singh a couple of days ago. Putin has walked away from peace and inches towards the horrors of war. New Democrats contemn the attack on the territorial integrity of Ukraine. With the escalating threat of further invasion, Canada must guard the safety, security, and sovereignty of the Ukrainian people. How is this different from Justin Trudeau? How is this different from the Canadian government? It isn't. It's exactly the same. It is utterly pointless and pro-imperialist that we see Canada has been playing a terrible role fanning the flames of conflict pushing the boundaries of NATO right up to Russia's border. We should, we should talk about that in a bit. And and Jagmeet Singh is just lining up with Canadian imperialism. In fact, elsewhere, the NDP put out a statement, a totally nonsensical, nonsensical statement saying that they supported Canadian uh, imperialism. Uh, they didn't use those words, but that was the content. Uh, but uh, they they had you know a few caveats. You said, oh, you should send aid, but not lethal aid. So like send helmets, but not guns. And it's just a joke. It's 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 total uh, whitewashing. To try and pretend that you're not being belligerent and militaristic and the fact is the canadian government has started sending guns now and the ndp is totally silent on that uh, elsewhere in this statement uh, they, they they recognize that the ukrainian military has got a tr- trouble with the far right just like the canadian military does and now there are Fascists in the Canadian military. Uh, We saw a few of them in the convoy uh, movement. But let's not pretend that the the fascist presence in the Canadian military is the same as in Ukraine. In Ukraine, there are total units under Nazi sympathizing flags. The Azov battalion is the most uh, famous. So it isn't just like a, a little problem, it is baked into the DNA, as Peter uh, explained earlier, that the regime leans upon these fascist uh, Nazi sympathizing elements. And then and finally, in this statement, the the most bizarre thing was they called for a feminist foreign policy. Right. A feminist foreign policy in Ukraine while they are supporting Canadian imperialism. Yeah, you know, This is the same trick to justify the Afghanistan war, right? Oh, it's a feminist foreign policy. We're in there to support women. B.S. Just B.S. It's so much propaganda and the NDP is parroting it.
0: Yeah, Absolutely scandalous. The arguments raised uh, in the so-called left to support imperialism ends up just being a left cover and left justification for this. It reminds me of statements that, well, Jagmeet Singh has made about many things about wet sweating, uh, which was used non-lethal force. Uh, yes. What is that again? About about Venezuela was of very similar to the statements of the Canadian government. Um, slightly different, but the same in content. To be honest. Um, Uh, ends up justifying, trying to play, oh, two sides when it's really U.S. imperialism, Canadian imperialism, trying to overthrow a democratically elected president. Um, So yeah, I think this is, yeah, just the uh, absolute bankruptcy of leadership uh, from the NDP on this issue once again. Uh, I have actually just saw news that there was a unanimous resolution passed Uh, in the Quebec National Assembly with Quebec Solidaire voting in favor of it. I haven't read all the details, but it was in solidarity with Ukraine. Uh, Of course, they used the Russia invasion to to, to basically end up accepting
2: Western imperialism. So, uh, yeah, this is absolutely ridiculous. And, And it's a movement to the right for the NDP. We shouldn't forget that in the 1980s, the position of the NDP was that Canada should leave NATO, which is the correct position. And because the NATO is a belligerent alliance, a capitalist alliance aimed against uh, the Soviet Union and 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 against workers of the world generally. And it shouldn't it shouldn't exist anymore, to be honest. Exactly. Why does NATO exist? Soviet Union doesn't exist. So why the does war, NATO... the,
0: Warsaw, the Warsaw Pact doesn't exist anymore? So NATO doesn't have a raison d'être. It doesn't have a reason to exist. But actually, after the Soviet Union collapsed, the uh, Western imperialist powers not only didn't disband NATO, but they ex- they took it as Peter explained. They took advantage of a weakened Russia, of an economically collapsed Russia, to expand military bases. I mean. Uh, yeah, we can Putin is a bastard, but some of the things that he says are actually true. there have, there's military bases, and Canada has a military bases. why Why does Canada have military base in Latvia again? What does this exactly. have to do with anything? So,, uh, yeah, this is, uh, the NDP has, going back to the NDP, has drifted far from this position, uh, the, well, more or less correct position on disbanding NATO, which is, an, you know, an anti-imperialist position. Um,
2: but yeah, maybe we can move on here to, so that's a bad I, position. Actually, another thing in terms of the NDP's present position, it's far worse than uh, what Jack Layton had in terms of the Afghanistan one. So... Uh, true. Jack Layton opposed NATO's aggression against Afghanistan. Uh, actually, uh, N- what was NATO doing in Afghanistan, right? It's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. As far as I know, my very limited understanding of, democ- of uh, <laughs> geography, geography. Uh, that uh, yeah, Afghanistan is not in the north or anywhere near the Atlantic. Right. Uh, and, and that's because they couldn't get they, they, the imperialist powers just use whatever front that is convenient to them. They don't care about international law. So they couldn't use the United Nations. So they uh, they couldn't use the Security Council. So they just use NATO and uh, Jack Layton, to his credit, opposed that that war and was labeled Taliban Jack in return. right, uh, the, the NDP, now I'm not going to pretend that Jack Layton was perfect and, and he supported the Libyan intervention of NATO when he was trying to become prime minister, and, uh, but the NDP has moved far to the right of that and it's totally indistinguishable from Canadian imperialism.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think that, that highlights fairly well uh, a bad approach that does not help. Us And does not help end this war, I would say. It doesn't help end this war. It helps extend it, I would say. (laughs) It helps uh, extend the conflict as well. And it actually backs up Western imperialism. So I guess through all of this... Uh, I talked a little bit about it. We got a little taste of what uh, international socialist position would be from Peter, but maybe, maybe we can talk about, about like, what's the approach? Like we're socialists. We're in Canada. Canada is a Western imperialist country. Uh, obviously we're not in favor of what Putin's doing, but, but, but what, what a pro- but uh, therefore are we going to take the position that the NDP is taking? Uh, did, uh, what, what is the approach that, that socialists in a Western imperialist country like Canada uh, should take.
2: Yeah. Lenin detailed this very well in his writings on war and definitely recommend people go back to Lenin's writings of on war around the first world war uh, before and after that he explained, you don't pay any attention to the propaganda about who shot first, because each reactionary power, they mobilise their entire propaganda machine to blame the other side, right? So, they, so the Western media is like, "Oh, Russian aggression, Russian aggression, Russian aggression." Putin unprovoked. Well, I mean, Russian media is talking about Nazis in Ukraine. They're going to denazify Ukraine, and Russia is under threat, and. And the reality is, we, we have to step back and uh, not go, you know, so sort of like, well, Putin invaded, right? No, it's what are the interests? What are the interests of the working class? What are the interests of the imperialist powers? The fact is, over the last three decades after the fall of the Soviet Union, a weakened Russia has, the West has taken advantage of a weakened Russia. NATO has expanded and expanded and expanded and expanded, and they've broken agreements, they've broken international law, they have been aggressive, bellicos, uh, Yugoslavia especially, uh, with regard to Russia's spheres of influence, they expanded, and they are about to expand all the way to the borders of Russia for their own imperialist interest, their own markets and spheres of interest. and. Russia, in a weakened state, didn't oppose them. Now, the West is following its imperialist interest. Russia has its imperialist interest. You push them, you push them, you push them, they're going to come back. They're going to come back eventually. If, If Russia just allowed Ukraine to join NATO, then Russia would be decisively weakened. And the reality is the Ukrainian people, the people of Eastern Europe, people of Russia, people of Canada, Germany, etc., are, are not benefited by being under control of either imperialist power. But the important thing for us as revolutionaries in the West is that I can't here, I can't do anything about Russian policy. But I can do something about Canadian policy. And American revolutionaries can do something about American policy and Brits about British, etc. That's the approach we should focus on.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. In many ways, I mean, not that this is a world war, it's a small conflict, but it reminds me of the correct position that, uh, w- well, that the, the the Second International had prior to World War One, uh, the more or less correct position that they'd had, which was that n- the working class would not support their the bourgeoisie in the advent of a war that they knew was coming. Unfortunately, Many of the leaders of the workers' movement of the Second International Parties, most of them, in fact, supported their own bourgeoisie to defend the fatherland. <laughs> uh, and so I think that it's very important that we revisit the, the uh, very fundamental Marxist approach to war, that the working class of Russia does not benefit from what Putin is doing. The working class of Ukrainian does not benefit from the, the Zelensky government. <laughs> the working class of Canada or America does not benefit from Western imperialism, from what our bourgeoisie does when they're carving up uh, new spheres of, int- of, of influence and for new markets. So I think it's, we in Canada, our first duty is to oppose and and point out the hypocrisy of Canadian capitalism and Canadian imperialism. That is the first duty. Our Russian comrades, uh, put out a very good statement, uh, actually just today, I believe, <laughs> uh, denouncing this war, uh, denouncing Putin, uh, denouncing this invasion, these military operations, uh, and our role is to, to aim our guns principally at Canadian imperialism, Canadian capitalism, and to not get, not get sucked into this, uh, either sideism because it is no solution in the long run, uh, under, uh, to, to support one imperialist power over the other. Um, so yeah, I think that that is a very important takeaway for socialists here to not get sucked into basically what is a chauvinist position on either side. Uh, I see people online, uh, left-wing people, some people putting a Ukrainian flag, others basically saying, oh, well, Ukraine's a bunch of Nazis anyway, <laughs> and they're ending up justifying either side of this, you know? So I think that that's very important that we have an independent internationalist class approach. Um, Yeah, very, very important, especially in a situation of war, uh, which can be, it's very emotional, right? (laughs) Obviously, this is, as Peter mentioned, people are dying. Civilians are dying, you know? Um, But yeah, uh, um, I don't know if you have any, do you have any final words here, Alex?
2: Yeah, the enemy is at home. The enemy is at home. If uh, the Canadian working class supports the Canadian ruling class, the war will never end. If the Russian working class supports The Russian ruling class, the wars will never end. If we fight our own ruling class in Canada, and the Russian workers fight their ruling class, that is what brings an end to war. That is actually what brought an end to the First World War. The German Revolution was what ended, and the Russian Revolution triggered off the German Revolution that ended the First World War. Revolutionary end to war. And and that is both in the immediate sense, we can give no support to the Canadian government, no whitewashing or feminist washing Canadian imperialist war aims uh, by any means. We need to oppose the hypocrisy there. We don't have to support Putin. Right. uh, Opposition to one side doesn't imply support for the other. Right. It isn't just you know a uh, zero sum game of that uh, we're not supporting putin but we're aiming our fire at western imperialism at nato for its extreme hypocrisy it is the job of the russian revolutionaries to uh, oppose putin uh, which they're doing so very well but we take that approach and that's how we end imperialist war and not and in the here and now but also systemically. Why are we seeing this now? Why are we seeing this conflict? Uh, one of the sort of uh, is definitely the worst conflict since in Europe, since Yugoslavia, and possibly the worst conflict since the Second World War. Possibly. Um, we'll, we'll we'll find out and, and see how much how long the fighting goes. But Uh, Why are we seeing this now? Well, if you hadn't noticed, capitalism is in abject crisis. Imperialism is in abject crisis. And in that, in periods of crisis, as Ted Grant said, you get wars, revolutions and counter revolutions. And if you want to end the wars and the counter revolutions, fight for revolution. Fight for revolution, that's what. Fight back, Leropostos, your and the internationalist Marxist tendency are doing. That's how you can end these wars. That's how you can stop the belligerence of Canadian imperialism that, and NATO that advanced all the way up to the borders of Russia, you know, poking the bear, poking the bear, poking the bear, poking the bear, and then eventually the Russian bear turned around and showed its teeth. Inevitably. The more you poke the bear, the more you're going to get the teeth. So stop poking the bear and and let's actually build internationalism, international solidarity, international socialism.
0: Yeah, fantastic. That's that's exactly the note we need to end off here. You know, Marx said the working class goes from a class in itself to a class for itself. And we are trying to build a conscious working class that does not fall behind one bourgeoisie or another, but has developed an internationalist socialist consciousness that can fight for a way out of the darkness of capitalism. That threatens to pull us into, you know, as uh, uh, I believe Rosa Luxemburg fa- famously said, it's socialism or barbarism. And war is just one of the most clear examples of that. Um, so, yeah, you want to end war join the Marxists, join us, get involved and fight for socialist revolution. Um, yeah. So I think that's a, we've had, this has been a very good uh, discussion. Um, I'm going to end it off there. Um, just as a final advertisement reminder, you want to learn about Marxism. You want to educate yourself. You want to be a, uh, a good socialist, get your subscription to the in defense of marxism magazine a quarterly magazine put out by the in defense of marxism uh in defense of Mar- marxist uh or sorry international marxist tendency um yeah go to our website marxist.ca go to the subscribe page and go to the bottom and you will see the information to get your in defense of marxism uh magazine subscription and have it mailed right to your door um there's also options for e-subscriptions and whatnot but yeah um the issue of Ukraine. We're all going to keep observing the situation. Uh, We will potentially discuss it next week. We'll see what happens. But yeah, we need to build an independent class approach, an internationalist approach. Uh, And so in order to do that, you got to join us, join the Marxists, join the international Marxist tendency uh, and fight for socialist revolution. You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca and we will be doing this podcast every week.
1: So we hope that you tune in again.